Let's Runners, we've got a special holiday treat for you up next. It's our conversation with one of our very own running intellectual, Malcolm Gladwell, who is in print saying Let'sRun.com is his favorite website. He talks about doping, Nike, super shoes, his love of running, what we can do to make our sport even more popular. It's definitely worth a listen. And if you're still looking for the perfect holiday gift for runners or the way to start out the new year, right? We've got you covered. TheRunnerBox.com. It comes to your doorstep loaded with over $50 plus of goods. These are great running products, electrolyte light stuff, some great organic cookies I had on the podcast last week. These products are tested by professional athletes to ensure the proper mix of nutrition and gear to get you started on your run. You can get a six-month supply for 81 bucks right now. And if you use code Let's Run, you can save $10 on your first order. Check out the link in the show notes. And if you're new to Let's Run.com, just listening to Malcolm, if you want to stay abreast of the latest in Olympic and professional running and track and field news, we've got you covered each day on Let's Run.com and every week on the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. Come on, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app right now. We guarantee you'll be entertained. And it's not too late to get the ultimate running gift and show your Let's Run.com insider. Join our supporters club today at the special holiday rate of 75 bucks, and it includes the iconic Let's Run.com yellow shirts, or if you want instead the 159.40 shirt, go to Let's Run.com slash subscribe to support your favorite independent journalism. Here he is, the one and only Malcolm Gladwell. We've got a very special guest today. It's Malcolm Gladwell. He's the author of best-selling books like The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, and his most recent book, Talking to Strangers. He's the host of the Revisionist History podcast, and most importantly, to Let's Run.com visitors. He's a running junkie. Sorry, David Epstein. Sorry, Nick Thompson. I'm anointing Malcolm, the number one running intellectual in America. Both of whom I've run with, by the way. All friends of Let's Run.com. Nick just got a new job. Congratulations. Malcolm was a high school champ in Canada. He ran 405 for 1500 at age 14. That's a sub 430 mile. 355 for 1500 in college. And I think a sub five minute mile at over age 50. That's correct. That's very impressive. And we used to be at least a fan of Let's Run.com. Still? What do you mean used to be? I don't know. Where's this used to be come from? This crazy year, you don't know what's happening. I don't want to put words in your mouth. He told Runner's World, I was on Letron.com, my favorite website, watching video of Mo Farah in Kenya. So that's the type of guy he is. Total running junkie. And we're honored to have him on the podcast. Malcolm, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be on, on, on talking to you guys. I think with the Valencia Marathon this past weekend, this is an easy place to start. Uh-huh. We've now had a man run 57 minutes in the half marathon. We've actually had four men now run 57 minutes in the half marathon, but Kibawat Candy, we've also got Jonathan Galt on here, the brains behind Let's Run. John, what was the exact time? I don't even know the exact time. I just know fourth place ran 57.59. Yeah, 57.32 was the world record by Kibawat Candy, and then Jacob Kiblimo, the world half marathon champion, five seconds back of him, but I guess that's how we wanted to open this thing. Like when you wake up on Sunday morning and you see these times, hopefully let's run.com is the one, the way you found out about it. But when you see all these times, like, do you get excited by world records like this anymore? Or is it, do your eyes glaze over? How do you feel about all this, Malcolm? No, these, these records are nuts. 
I mean, I don't. I do get excited, but at the same, but but not when I think there's some kind of other variables that are screwing up the accomplishment. And I I no longer know how much is the shoes, how much is um, COVID era um, uh, PED use, and how much is genuine ability. Um, I I think the shoes. The more I read, I mean, you guys would know much more about this than me, but the more I read about the shoes, the more I'm beginning to think that shoes are are looming larger than almost anything else these, these days. This, these, these, these times are, these road racing times are crazy, right? I mean, they're, they're, for four people to obliterate what was a really good record set by a beast. I mean, Camel War, it's not like Camel War is like some flash in the pan. I mean, the man is a, you know, I just, I, it's just strains. Credulity. You cannot convince me that those four people are all better than Jeffrey Gamor. You're a, a true Let's Run.com visitor if you went straight to the COVID drug testing. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because a lot of people have gone there and I'm like, no, come on, don't be so jaded. And maybe I'm too naive, too innocent. I want to believe people. I think that was like a premise of talking for strangers. I, I mm. Someone tells me they're clean. I believe it. But I personally, I, I'm, I err more on the side of shoes. I mean, I woke up. John, you didn't, also, you assumed he wasn't waking up at 3 a.m. to watch this race live. I mean, there are very few people in the world who might do this, but Malcolm might be one of them. I was not. No, I, I did not. I, I, I waited. I waited. I will stay up for some things, but not that. Well, actually, that was actually something I wanted to ask real quick, though. What are the must-see things that you get up to? Like, what do you have to watch live? Mostly it's uh, Diamond League. So in the summer, in a normal summer, when there actually are Diamond League events, I will, I can remember once um, I was having lunch with an exceedingly important person in my life, not in the world, but someone I desperately needed to impress in order to get something made and done. And I ducked out after 45 minutes because I wanted to watch it a DL 5,000 meters and I I have my computer and I went to like, I was in some restaurant, I was in a hotel in a restaurant and I went to like, you know, basically back by the men's bathroom and hid out and watched the 5K. I didn't want this guy to know that I was abandoning him to watch a 5,000 meters. So yeah, I have done, I will, I will take extraordinary steps for really for track races I don't know whether a marathon, a half marathon, you're talking about a significant chunk of time. Yeah, yeah. What? Wait, do you remember what 5K this was? No, the genius of that was that it was not a particularly, I think it was just like a, you know, it was like at the Weltklasse or something. I don't know what it was. It was just, it was just a random middle of the summer, but you never know what's going to happen, right? It was, I think it has, it had some fast people in it and I had high hopes. Well, that's good. We got the Diamond League. The Diamond League has brought back the 5K after sort of like a hiatus this year. So uh, there'll be races to watch in 2021. What were they smoking that they removed? I mean, do you do we need... I know this is a tangent. We were supposed to be talking about shoes and Valencia, but do we need further evidence of how hopelessly out of touch the power brokers in track and field are that they would remove what is to distance runners, who are, by the way, we are the sizable, we are the largest and most powerful kind of voting block within the track and field community, right? We dwarf every other sub-discipline within track and field. What is the most interesting race for us on the track? It is the 5K. I, I mean, 
if we took a vote of everyone who runs more than 40 miles a week and watches international track and said, what's your favorite long distance event on the track? They would say the 5K. Oh, I don't know about that. I feel like 800 or 1500 is more interesting to me than I, I like the 5K. I was better at the 5K than the 15 and the 8, but I think those are just inherently more interesting. I just, anyway, the, regardless, it's something we certainly wouldn't put it below like the shot put, now would we? The point is, if you're running international track and field and you think the 5K is expendable, you're completely out of touch with your customers. It's nuts. Anyway. We for sure wouldn't put it below the 3K. I mean, the 3K means nothing to anyone, I feel like. I know, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's like, it's crazy. John talked to Sebco yesterday, and the 5K is back, so. Oh, that's good. He can explain that at well, some point. Well, you sound like you're giving me credit. That was the decision <laughs> was made before the conversation. But You could reverse course, John. You, you made him stick to the line. Well, no, it's funny. Robert, like, texted me before the interview. He's like, He's on this crusade to get the 2016 Olympic marathon results invalidated because the Nike athletes were wearing like these prototype shoes. And he's like, I'll pay you $10,000 if you can get Sebco to invalidate the, those results and get Galen Rupp stripped of his Olympic medal. And I'm just like, I, I couldn't do that even if I wanted to, Robert. But that's not a, that's not a, a, a trivial request. Or a, 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 you know, that's a legit, it's a legit question, right? Now that we're all... Now that we've all sobered up a bit about shoes, to go back to the earlier point of our conversation, it is becoming increasingly clear they are they represent a massive advantage. And the thing that you saw this, I think I may even have read this on Let's Run, that the benefit that an individual runner gets from these shoes is highly variable. Some are getting a greater benefit than others. Now we're in crazy territory. If you told me that it across, gave everyone across the board a 2% advantage, I would say... That's sad, but I'll take it because we can all wear these shoes. But now they're telling me that there is a – I had no idea there was a variation from runner to runner and how much benefit you get from shoes. Now that I know, know that, my kind of ambivalence towards these shoes has hardened into flat-out antipathy. I mean it is, they, it is nuts to let this, this sort of shoe arms race continue. Yeah, originally I was first opposed to them just because I want a level playing field. I actually talked to Meb earlier today. I was asking him about Rafer Johnson, who died this week, because they're both UCLA legends. And real quickly, I'm like, Meb, 57-minute half marathon. And he's like, I retired at the right time. <laughs> and then I said, what about the shoes? And Meb's like, hey, progress is a good thing. They're running faster. But the fairness issue is probably the big one. Like, you know, Meb talked about Jim Ryan. And I could care less that Jim Ryan ran on a dirt track. Like, to me, progress, fine. Mm-hmm. But we weren't giving some people a Mondo track and some keeping them on a dirt track. I mean, that's my issue with it. And it's the records this weekend were set in Adidas shoes, which is good. At least another company has caught up. But are we going to get to the point? Depends on one, your sponsor, two. Then maybe you're trying out ser- separate shoes to see which one you respond to. Like that's so far from the purity of, I think, why we probably all love running at some point, right? Like it's the most simple and beautiful sport out there. Yeah. You know, um, if I might make an analogy, I was talking to someone. Every, every sport is going through a version of this. Not every sport, but many sports, tennis, skiing, golf, are all grappling with the effects of um, recent and dramatic improvements in the t- technology of equipment. And <clears throat> with respect to golf, somebody was saying to me, you know, the the core issue is the balls that 
Ball technology has improved quite dramatically, and that's part of the reason why these guys are bombing, you know, 450-yard drives. And what, an easy fix is you could say to the Masters, which has been destroyed by all of this power surge in golf, you provide your own balls. So every time someone comes to play the Masters, you play with the Masters ball, which is engineered to travel a little slower and not as far. And that's part of the skill of golf then becomes adapting to the different ball regimes of each major. Well, I don't understand why why couldn't hypothetically we have this in place for running, that elites in a given road race would have to wear the official shoes of the of the race. So the Berlin Marathon decides what shoes you wear at the Berlin Marathon. First of all, this could be fantastic. So if the Berlin Marathon could say, all right, let's have Nike waffle trainers in the 1970s. Let's see what you can do with nothing on your feet, right? I, why not, right? Let's, I mean, if you're going to let, I don't see why that, I see that as in every way an improvement over a situation that's just pure lawlessness, where everyone wears whatever they can on their feet, regardless of, of, its, uh, of, of the effect on its running. Well, I th- I think that's a fascinating idea. Like I'd love to because then you're getting a truly level level playing field, right? But I think the problem is the shoe companies run the sport. Like they are the ones who sponsor not only these events but also the the individual athletes. And if you as an athlete are only wearing the singlet, but you're not really wearing the shoes, are you providing them the same amount of value? You know, all that sort of thing. I think that's the, the problem you run into. Yeah. Well, that I mean, now where the deeper question is. How nuts is it to have a sport that is controlled by three shoe companies? I mean, that's just, it is crazy. Right? There's just, I mean, there's, there's just no good outcome comes from allowing your sport to be run like that. I guess that's a question. I mean, that kind of gets into why isn't, why aren't there sort of non endemic sponsors, more of them in running? Like, mm-hmm. we're sort of dependent upon the shoe companies, but why? You could argue that the sport's just not popular enough, but why isn't like GM sponsoring stuff? And you know, there's yeah. some stuff with the Olympics and that sort of stuff. But well, we're seeing the beginning. So I will make no secret of my affection for Tracksmith. Um, I am, uh, you know, they've been advertised on. I know Matt Taylor of Travis, but they've advertised on Revisionist History, et cetera, et cetera. That's a good. They're starting to sponsor runners. There's more. I don't know whether there's more money made in apparel than there is in shoes, but it's got to be close, right? There's no reason why three shoe companies should be the only sponsors. You're absolutely right. We should, as a first order of business, be getting more of the pure apparel makers. And then as a second order, you know, the 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 energy drink guys and the we can keep going. There should be a long list of people who are jostling for uh to have some stake in this. And it's crazy to me that there that there aren't. That we let Nike be the default for everything. Shout out to Matt Taylor, who's my college teammate in, uh, at Yale. But no, I didn't really. Who was faster? Uh, well, I was a senior. He's a freshman. Come on, you're ducking the question. He was a steeplechase. I was faster. <laughs> Come on. I was faster. <laughs> Come on, that's what I wanted. A little honest. Weldon is a 28.06 10K PB. I mean, Weldon was legit. But not in college, though. In college, actually, I wonder. I bet you my 5K pair probably ended up being slightly faster than his. Matt, Matt's no slouch. Oh, he could... Who's faster now is the real question, and it's definitely him. Yeah, but I've heard your voice on some of their commercials, and I did, I did. This is a testament to Matt as well. I think that yeah, we, Matt's got to be loving it. You're comparing him to like Diamond League sponsors and Nike and Adidas, because <laughs> I think now they you know they sponsor like 
they had the most sponsored athletes at the Olympic marathon trials, but they're Matt's very strategic. They're picking up the people who don't have sponsors. Mary Kane's very popular, but the traditional companies weren't thinking of signing her. Yeah. Nick Willis kind of passed his prime. Yeah. And hey, John, they had a Diamond League winner, right? Some guy won the hurdles in uh, oh, yeah. what was your guy's name? Doha this year. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. But no, I think it's just a matter of... I. My sense is that Tracksmith will prove to be um, a turning point in a sport where a lot of other brands are going to see the value of affiliating with the sport in some meaningful way. So the way he's doing it is really smart. He, what he said is, I'm going to be involved with runners who have a profile and a following and a personality, and not with runners who are ranked number one in the world. And um, <clears throat> I think that's a, an incredibly healthy move for our sport, is if we're going to grow this sport, we have to understand that Meb and Nick Willis and Mary Kane uh, are, you know, maybe are more important than Galen Rupp if we're trying to get the word out about how good running is. They're not as fast as Galen, but even Galen will tell you he's not a pitch man, right? Doesn't have the he's not a he's not an extroverted, charismatic, fascinating running geek who he's he's a quiet guy who wants to do his own thing. It's not a natural. You don't build the sport with Galen Rupps. Yeah, he's a running geek, but he's the more traditional running geek, the quiet running geek. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with even though the Tracksmith thing, that's still, I don't think the Diamond League type sponsor, right? They're sponsoring people not in the Diamond League traditionally. Yeah. So it's like, how do we get? Yeah, but when, but, but Tracksmith said, what are they? I don't know. I guess I have no idea. If they're a $20 million company now, check back in with me when they're a $200 million company. Ooh. Right. Then, then you can imagine them being the sponsor of a series of road races or, you know, an alternate American cross country championship or something interesting. And then, you know, then, you know, or sponsoring an, the, you know, the Diamond League event that's on American soil. You know, you can see it's early stages for, for companies like that. That's a good point because Matt loves the top end of the sport, but I think he's actually smart and strategic. It makes more sense to sponsor the next tier below that because. Mm -hmm. The top end of the sport, so is like, oh, you were fourth of the Diamond League. You're better than sixth of the Diamond League without looking at like social profile or that sort of stuff. Or like when I was a hack of a runner in DC, my I ran the Marine Corps Marathon. I like had written all these companies, said, oh, we sponsor me. Some Puma local rep sends me some shoes and gear, and I win the Marine Corps Marathon. There's no prize money there. It's like one of the easiest things to win, but there's mm -hmm. still whatever, 20,000 runners, whatever the number is. Yeah. There was no Washington Redskins game that day. I mean, I had homeless people, no joke, on the street who knew my brother. He talks to everybody saying, oh, my God, you're the guy. I saw you. People at my work thought I had won the Boston Marathon. It made no difference to them. And it, yeah. this guy who at Puma who gave me the shoes, he probably didn't even really know like what happened. Mm -hmm. It cost them absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's it's smart what what they're doing, and I think you're right. If Tracksmith did get a lot more money, they would then try to mm -hmm. play on the at at that higher level. I hadn't thought about that. No, we will look back. I don't want to be too harsh about on, on Nike, but at the end of the day, I am not convinced that Nike's influence on the sport has been positive. I think it was once. I no longer think it is. I think it. I think it is distorting um, the sport, and it's they're too big for their own. Um, good and for our own good, it's just not, you know, the and the Oregon centricity of track and field is not healthy for the sport. We shouldn't have such a strong regional um, identification with this. 
I'm sorry, it's a small corner of the country. It's not running is bigger than than Oregon. You you wouldn't know that if you were an outsider. If you were a Martian and you came down to Earth, you would think that running was an activity engaged in by people who live in and around Portland, Oregon. That's what you would think. It's like, oh, they're all wearing something made in Portland, Oregon or in Eugene or whatever. And this but that's just for a sport that wants to be bigger than that, I think that's just nuts. Was there like a this is a horrible pun here, but was there like was there a tipping point for you? You said you used to think that Nike was good for the sport and now you think it's it's you know, too powerful, too influential. Was there something that broke for you there? Mm. <clears throat> I never, I mean, I'm actually a a fan of Salazar's in the sense that I think he is a brilliant coach and I'm not convinced that all the bad things said about him are true. But I do think there was a point where the Oregon Project was kind of distorting um, American elite running, that it was just... It's it's this this idea. It's <clears throat> the way to build the sport and create a stronger sport is not to coddle a, a small number of names at the very very top. It is to solidify the base. Um, right now, what we have is a very strong and wide base for fun running, for casual running, but not for serious running. The serious runners, the serious mediocre runner, is the is the. You know, and I count myself as one of them. We are the foundation of the sport. You know, we're not going to run insane times, but we take running very, very seriously. We care about it, and we're willing to. And we're not. You know, in in an ideal world, we would be the ones being cultivated by uh, by all of this kind of corporate interest. It does not cultivate that serious running base to give Galen Rupp his fourth. You know. Uh, underwater treadmill or his, you know, pay $100,000 for some tent that he can sleep in. You know, that's not that's not dealing with the with the underlying problem here. I guess the counter argument would be, I don't know, some other sport like, well, football, there's not really a participation element. Soccer, take soccer. Mm-hmm. They devote tons of money to the top end of soccer, the Premier League. They pay the stars tons of money. Sure, they probably throw some whip service to like youth soccer and that sort of stuff, but it's finding the next stars. They're not funding my youth soccer league, my adult over 40 soccer league, or, or maybe I'm not getting exactly what you're saying they should be doing for sort of the, sort of the let's run junkie, the competitive Mm -hmm. runner, like, or do you just think they don't, their message doesn't cater to them and that they're sort of win at all cost mentality turns you off. Let's use soccer as an example. How many, uh, uh, colleges and universities in America in the last two years have publicly announced that they're cutting their soccer programs. Good point. None that I know of. Right? They're not. Nor are they cutting their football programs. They're not. Why are they not doing that? Because they understand that those sports that are and soccer programs at most American colleges are fall into the category of the the serious mediocre athlete. Right? These are not people who are going to play professional soccer, but they are valued members of the kind of athletic community in these places because the sport has a certain kind of social status. Um, at the same time, these same colleges think are thinking nothing apparently of cutting their cross-country programs or huge swaths of their track programs. That's what I'm talking about. That can we get, we ought to be able to get running to the point where it's on the same level in places like colleges and universities as soccer programs. And it, by the way, it's not the case that soccer programs have more people going out for them than cross-country or track. 
It's just that the status is higher. And I, that if and if I was a if I was Nike and I saw myself as a custodian of the sport, I would I would say one of my goals is to build that kind of institutional grassroots support for for the serious mediocre runner in America. And that means that they, Mikey would make it very difficult for Clemson to cut its cross country program. They would stand up and scream, right? Why? If you're not, why didn't I hear from Nike on that? Why didn't they take out an ad in the? Maybe they did, but I didn't hear about it. Why didn't Nike take out a massive, you know, full page ad in the student newspaper at Clemson saying, "What on earth are you doing?" Right? That's that's the point I make. Well, I'm I'm interested, like. Do you think like the way the sport is presented professionally at the highest level? Do you think that is like is good? Does that need to be improved, and we just need to find the fans for it, or are there ways that that can be improved as well? Because we always hear from there are like big ideas. Oh, we need to make the sport more popular. We need to do this to draw in new fans. Like, but I never like I never really see many results from all those ideas. So, do you think there that that needs to be changed, or is that okay? And it's just a matter of finding the people who need to be fans. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a multi. I all I a lot of my kind of passion about this subject came from about three years ago. Um, after just after putting my season of revisionist history to bed, I was totally exhausted, and I rewarded myself by flying to Switzerland and going to a Diamond League meet. Um, which one was it? Oh, the one in Lausanne. Nice. Um, and it, you know. <clears throat> Actually, it was a pretty good meet. Um, it's a standard issue DL meet on like a Thursday night in Europe. And it was in one of the big soccer stadiums in um, in Lausanne. So Lausanne is a second-tier city in Switzerland. And they had they got out, I don't know, 25,000 people. I don't know what it was. I have no idea. They filled a soccer stadium on a Thursday night for a track meet. And I was like... Wow, if Lausanne can do that, I don't know why that's so difficult in the United States. Something has there's something present in the track and field culture of those European countries um, that is not present in America. And um, what I would like is for us to make an honest attempt to be as good as the Europeans on this front. Um, and I, I see some kind of I don't know how you do it. I mean, I have some ideas, but. I, you have ideas too. I just would like to see somebody try them. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really great point because it's definitely, you know, you, there are some countries, some meets, maybe they don't draw as much, but I think in general, like meets in Europe will draw more spectators and just have more general fan interest. Maybe that's because like America, we already have four major professional sports leagues and then you got like golf and tennis, all these other things. Someone like Switzerland, I don't know, their leagues aren't the best in their respective sports. I mean, the Swiss soccer teams, they're not even close to the top in Europe. So they might be more intrigued in sort of these top athletes from around the world coming into their city and they can see some sort of world-class sporting event. Whereas in America, you get world-class sporting events almost every other weekend in you know non-pandemic times. Yeah, but if you look in the stands of the Paris Diamond League, you'll see tens of thousands of people too. I know it's not unique to Switzerland. I mean, sure, sure. there just is a track and field culture in those countries that's... Pretty impressive. Back to the U.S. for a second. Malcolm, we're talking about Nike and everything. Have you been to Hayward Field? I have not. And I, it's, I'm remiss in that. I would love to go um, to any meet there. I mean, it sounds like a magical place. I, would, I didn't mean to diss Portland entirely, but 
<laughs> I so no, I I hope to. Yeah, no, it is interesting because one port one in general. Nike's there, Adidas' U.S. operations are there. Like you probably know more. Like why all these you get talent in certain industries, you know, going to certain regions of the country. But one thing I am very excited about is the new Hayward Field. I mean, at the time I, I was like, they don't need to knock down the old one. It's got so much history. And maybe it's COVID or whatever. I'd be excited to go to a track meet in the middle of Iowa. I, that's actually the other place we have a lot of track meets in America for some reason. But Hayward Field, Olympic Trials 2021, please, please, fans. I need fans for that one. I'm so excited. Yeah. And and that but and that wouldn't be possible without Phil Knight. Now, whether that's, you know, whether you separate that from Nike is a different thing. But I guess my... Nike's changing some of its leadership. John Capriati, the running marketing guy, is gone. And I feel like maybe the whole company, I mean, Matt Hart had the book. I'm not sure if you've read it, When It All Cost on Nike. But I'm hoping some changes to the top can change some of the focus because I think Nike could have created some goodwill if they showed some interest to care about anti-doping. Just, oh, we want to help fight to keep track programs in America. Like a little PR. My wife does PR. I see why. It makes a positive it influences what people think of these companies no i i was but i'll give you an example of my frustration with nike you know i have one of the things i've marveled about um in the last couple of years is let's use one example the growth of strava um and how quickly strava has become a fundamental part of the running culture of many of the people in this serious mediocre class of which i which I belong to, um, and that idea that it, that what they have kind of exposed is how valuable it is to give someone who is toiling away in a relatively solitary sport some broader sense of community, and also how interested we are, genuinely interested in other people's running practices. And Strava gives you, you know, I follow a bunch of elites on Strava. I find it insanely interesting, and I'm not alone. Thousands of people do. Why then, if I was Nike and going back and redoing the Oregon Project, I would have made the training activities of my athletes transparent, right? I should know what – I'd love to know what Galen Rupp is – he doesn't have to give interviews and be warm and hilarious and charismatic. It's, it's just as good if he tells me what he's doing. Right, and if there was a time, let's just—I actually visited Salazar because I was writing about him at a time before the 2012 Olympics, um, and he was there was Centrowitz, Mo Farah, Dathan Ritzenheim, and Galen Rupp were all training together in Utah, Park City, and I went there, and literally I went up to meet Salazar, and the four of them are right there, and I was like, all I could think of first of all, I was starstruck. But secondly, I was like, well, what are you guys doing? Like, what's the workout? Like, I need to know. And then and then, Centrowitz was doing 200s, and I was sitting, standing with Salazar while Centrowitz did these 200s. And I'm sorry. It's like it is unbelievable to watch a world-class runner do 200 repeats, right? It's, I mean, you know this. It's just riveting, right? And like if they were to share some of that magic – with the serious mediocre runner, that's what builds the sport. Like, let us participate. With basketball, we always forget. You get 
exposure three times a week to your favorite players during the season. The season lasts, whatever it is, six months, and you get gossip, updates, trades all year long, and you can follow them on Twitter. You go, you are so deep inside your favorite teams and favorite fans that you feel like you're living their life with them. We have none of that in running. I don't, you know, if, if, Galen Rupp went for a recovery run this morning. I don't know how far he went and how fast he went. Why not? Yeah. I'm a Galen Rupp fan. I, I think that's a, I think that's a great point because uh, there are certain athletes in this sport who are there are some that are actually trying to move forward. And I think Tin Man Elite is one that's sort of sharing stuff. NAZ Elite they post their training on Strava, but there are a lot where you ask them, oh, what like they're like, oh, I did this really great workout last week, and I'll be like, oh, well, what was it? And then they're like, oh, I don't know if I can share my coaches you know he said i don't know if i'm allowed to say it or like rup like anytime you ask any sort of specifics on workouts they're very hesitant but i think when you do learn those details it's so exciting like well you got to tell him the story matthew central at summer of 2016 after that track town meet he was doing like a set of 800s afterwards i think and i remember you wrote something if you don't remember it, i'll just tell the story anyway but like do you remember seeing him this was in the lead up to rio right before he won the gold medal john i'm I'm not like a running workout geek guy. Like I remember him doing some killer workout, but I definitely don't remember the details. Oh, okay. Cause I do this. So this was the, cause we were typing. This right? was the, no, no, I wasn't there. This was the summer of 2016. And do you remember like they did, this was the track town summer series. Like this was the first year Vin Lanana tried to make, do this meet. And it was a chance because the Olympics were in South America. Not all the Europe, all the Americans were going to Europe to run. So Centro was running the 800 here and he only ran like 147 or something. It was pretty pedestrian by his standards, uh, especially since he had trounced everyone at the trials, like, you know, earlier that month. But anyway, this was also at that time, Haywood field was scheduled to be rebuilt after that season. And then the timeline got screwed up, but this was supposed to be like the last meet at Haywood field. And afterwards Centro gets on the track and he runs a set of three, 800s and i think the first one was like 151 and then the second one was 149 and i think the last one was 147 and weldon was up in the media tribune typing this and he kind of figures this out and he's like oh my god like centro's doing a workout and he had like kyle merber pacing him and then i remember this didn't come out till after but like before the last like centro only thought it was going to be two reps because he'd already done that 147 in the race and then Salazar goes up to him and says, like, then he, he says, says, hey, you got one more. And he runs like 147, which is ridiculous in a workout like that. And he's like, that's how you win an Olympic gold medal. And then a month later, he won an Olympic gold medal. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's, look, I once saw a video, you guys maybe saw it too, of LeBron James doing a workout where he's running the length of a basketball court, dunks, runs to the other end, dunks, runs to the other end, dunks, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. You know, I don't remember how many. It had millions of views, right? Basketball does this all the time. They post these rando snippets of people's workouts and people eat it up. There's an infinite capacity uh, for that kind of thing among the in the kind of greater fandom. Why on earth... Like why can't why why wasn't someone live streaming that eight hundred workout and just showing it to us? I would be as excited to watch that as the race. Yeah, actually, speaking of that, when are you racing uh, LeBron James in a mile? Isn't that that's the big showdown, right? 
guy's he's ducking me. <laughs> we have like YouTube celebrity stars boxing now. I think this thing might happen because of COVID. This might be another positive because of COVID. I don't, you know, I don't think I'm beating LeBron. Just, I've all I've been very clear on this from the beginning. There, I think LeBron is a easily a five minute miler. Oh, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I bet a point guard, but he's like six eight, like two. 70 or something like how how fast do you think you could run right now me well if you let me if i train specifically for the mile i i think i get it could be around five minutes yeah i think you'd beat them i think just that being that big it is just hard to propel all that mass for four laps are you gonna wear the super spikes malcolm or are you a purist i mean first of all he's he's a nike athlete right there's no way he's entering without the. I would. I demand equal kit. So <laughs> if he's going to wear the super spikes, I'm wearing the super spikes. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that workout, John. You're talking about because one, this just shows track and sort of the purity of it. Because every time I had, I picture Hayward Field. I picture like the pre meet or the Olympic trials, and a lot of people being there. Like you're sitting next to me, we're covering the meet afterwards. But in reality, this was the Track Town was it Track Town USA meet. That was Track Town Summer Series, I believe, which was just one race. There was like the smallest crowd ever in the history of Eugene, Oregon, which shows there was track fatigue even in Oregon mm-hmm. at the meet in general. And then afterwards, you know, like there was three people there, and I was one of them to see this thing. And but to me, it's all the same. Like the Olympics, it's weird. It's like the purity of it. That workout would be the same for me if I'm the only guy there, or fifty thousand people. And one thing I've heard is. People in Let's Run, I wish track was more popular. And then some guy replies, no, you don't. Because then you'd be like jam-packed next to people in the stadium. You kind of like having a road to yourself. <laughs> so we may not make it people happy. Well, that's the problem sometimes. If you go from like hipster, the Europe, I think soccer, like 10 years ago, soccer was not that popular in the US. And the people who like loved it were very fiercely protective of it. And then I think when it started, now it's kind of gone mainstream and I don't feel this way. I'm actually, I'm like a big soccer fan and I'm pretty happy there are more fans around here because I get to watch all the Premier League games now. But I'm sure there are some people who are like, hey, you weren't watching like German League games back in 2010. You know, you can't, you can't, you don't enjoy this as much as me. You can't, you know, they're angry that they're there. You were talking about basketball and they're so accessible. And I think social media is making every sport more accessible. So we need to do something to stand out. But I think one thing, and I've never heard this discussed anywhere, that the NFL did in the U.S., was their games were the time kids could always watch. Mm-hmm. They're, they're during the day, and they were on the most viewable platform possible at the time, over-the-air TV. Whereas a lot of sports, you know, like baseball, oh, we'll take the money grab, we'll go on cable at night. But then fast forward 10 years, not as many kids were exposed to you every day at Sunday at 3 p.m. And so I think track, hopefully, because one, we're going to have Eugene 2022 now, and then LA is not that far, 2028. And as a kid, you know, I remember the first thing I sort of remember as a fan was the LA Olympics. So maybe there's a chance in North America to really do something with track and field, but uh, I think it takes money and it takes forward thinkers. And our sport usually doesn't have that combination, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would love to see um, the use of technology, uh, technology integrated into running. So imagine, I mean, this is not an idea unique to me, but imagine a a marathon where we're getting real-time readouts on 10 different physiological variables during the marathon. I mean, not just heart rate and everything else, but so I can see who's struggling and I can see who's 
Or I could just, I mean, it just would, you just give us more to consume, more information to play with while we're, while we're watching the event. Um, all that stuff is totally doable now. I mean, you could put a little chip in a, in a, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, a whoop bracelet and you could stream that and you could watch it. I mean, there's nothing, just like the, the, I, I just find, I mean, and maybe it turns out to be a dud, but at least we tried. I just find the lack of imagination about how to make these things more interesting. You know, I for the longest time I had the idea of um, uh, all the intimate field events should be moved to tennis stadiums at the Olympics. It's crazy. Why are you doing the long jump in a traditional-sized stadium where the event is lost? The event is a... It's an intimate event. Same with the high jump. These are intimate events, pole vault. Put them in an intimate arena. A tennis, a tennis uh, 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 stadium is a, is a good approximation of a much more intimate space, right? Just really easy stuff like that. Like, or, you know, a marathon that loops three times through the stadium over the course of the marathon. I mean, I realize it's logistically difficult, but I don't know. It'd be kind of fun if you're in the middle of a track meet and you take a break because the marathon runners are are running through, at least the elites. I mean, there's a million there's a million ideas we should be trying, and we're just not trying any. We're just we're continuing to behave as if it's 1951. And track was popular then for some reason. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know why. Maybe there were less alternatives. I think then also probably. Was it more universal? Why would track be so much popular back then? Well, there's a theory I once heard a British guy give, which I've been fascinated by ever since, which is, you know, what is the biggest difference between Western countries like the U.S., the population in the U.S. and Britain in 1950 and now? Well, there's a number of reasons, but the biggest difference is weight, right? We are way heavier as a population now than we are. And when you add weight— you are essentially um, removing the possibility that you'll ever be a runner. So the population in my, my father is English. He went to English um, schools, high schools and elementary schools in the 1930s and early 1940s. In his generation, nearly every boy would have been thin enough to be able to run a couple of miles at the age of 14. That was his experience. Running cross country in my father's High school was a was not a it wasn't six kids who did it. It was like half the class, right? You cannot do that in American high schools today. Most kids are incapable of running even half a mile for a number of reasons, but principally because the obesity problem in this country is out of control. Obesity has really taken its toll on the pool of people who are available to run. Not true of football, right? The the brilliance, if you want to call it a football, is it's a sport that is more than happy to accept people who are um, heavier than they should be. Created a role for them. In fact, promoted obesity as a means through which people could play the sport well. I mean, talk about a, a, a sport that is in a bizarre and unhealthy and diabolical way perfectly evolved for the age we live in. Running is a little anachronistic. Um, so that's an interesting, one interesting theory about this. For sure. Um, so before we get you out of here, Malcolm, because you know we could talk to you about running all day, but there's a couple other things I wanted to hit. Like, who who are your favorite athletes to watch these days in sport of running? Mm, 
I find myself increasingly watching a lot of vintage races. By vintage, I mean, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, you know, Bekele, Hickamel Drush, that era of runners, um, oral, you know, Sebco, Steve Vet races. So I have a, you know, that, if you want to call that the golden age of middle distance running, I have a weakness for that. Um, who do I like to watch? I mean, I was always a big Ben True fan um, when in his kind of heyday. I just loved the way he ran. The internet's exploding right now as everyone go, goes and Googles Ben True. <laughs> I loved uh, Mary Kane in her heyday. I just thought the way she ran was so much... Um, uh, you know, there was something, she was really, I loved how sort of ballsy her running was. She seemed to be fearless. She was 17 and seemed completely fearless. Um, uh, you know, I'm pretty, I don't have a kind of, it's not a small list. I can be interested in anyone who sort of is distinctive or courageous or um, in some way in the way they run. I was cu- I was curious about Justin Knight because I feel like he's tailor-made for you. His his mom is Jamaican and he runs for Canada. You, you know, he grew up in Toronto. Toronto, yes. Is, yes. Are, you a, are you a Justin Knight fan? I am. Well, I'm a. I have often. It has often been said that I am the that Cam Levens is my doppelganger. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. So I have a special. I have a special affection for Cam. Um, I've never met Justin. I've never met Justin. I've obviously followed his career. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm obviously going to be biased in favor of the Canadians. Um, there's a, you know, Justin, the basketball player Jamal Murray, half Jamaican, half Canadian or English, grew up in my hometown. There's a little group of the, the half Jamaicans out there, of which I'm a proud part. We're, uh, we have quite a, you know... We have uh, we, we, there's quite a long list of us yeah. who have done well in the world of sports. Yeah, he had a he had a huge year this year in the play. You know, they got to the Western Conference Finals with the Nuggets. And I mean, and now that we're on the subject of half Jamaicans, Kamala Harris, future Vice President of the United States, or pardon me, current or Vice President elect yes. of the United States, half Jamaican. I could go on, but a big moment for us. I mean, Jamaica. Hits over its way in a lot of things. What's the population? It's like only like three or four million, right? Yeah. My favorite thing is so my cousin who lives in Kingston. Uh, his son was a sprinter, and he was in like in third grade. And I was like, oh, you know, it's like, what's his time? Blah, blah, blah. He goes, yeah, yeah. But and then it, it emerged that his son's elementary school had a sprint coach, <laughs> which I just love. It's like, I just love like. It gives you some window into West Indian running culture when you learn that the elementary schools of Kingston have their own dedicated sprint coaches. <laughs> I mean, makes sense. But yeah, it right? does make yeah. sense now. There's a bit of a vacuum, though, with Bolt gone and Johan Blake's kind of getting a little older. I feel like Jamaican sprinting kind of ruled the world in the 2010s. Women's side, they're still really good. but Women's side is good. And also, if you follow champs, there's a whole nother, um, there's a whole nother generation on the way. You started the podcast with some skepticism of the Kenyan distance runners. I guess some people would say, oh, the Jamaicans, are you confident they're clean? You're never going to get me to admit the Jamaicans aren't clean. Come on. It's, it's like... <laughs> I, I have no reason to doubt Bolt. I, and they, you haven't seen a lot of positive tests like you have in Kenya, for one thing. No. And also, you know, uh, it is a lot easier to run a rigorous testing regime in a country like Jamaica than it is in Kenya. 
for, for simple logistical reasons, right? I mean, Jamaica is a small island. It's easy to get anywhere you need to go. Most of the runners are going to be in Kingston. Whereas Kenya, you know, the just getting to these athletes half the time has got to be a little bit of a struggle. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not skeptical of of any of the Jamaicans under any circumstances ever. <laughs> I listened to the. I think it was last year you did it a uh, Runners of New York City podcast. You did. Oh yeah. And I think you revealed that Aspel Kiprop was the like background on your phone. Is he still there? Hold on. Hold on. I got to screenshot this, John. Get ready for this. Wait, am I showing it? There he is. Whoops, wrong button. John, are you doing it? <laughs> there he is. It? Let me hit the right button. Got it. Wow. So I have a special place for Aspel Kipper up in my heart. I think there's something that guy ran. Now, maybe he was doped to the gills. I mean, the evidence seems to point that way. But I think you need to get to the bottom of this because this, he's still spouting off on Twitter that he's completely innocent and it's going to re- redeem himself. And I don't know what year he'll be back, 2022 or something. But there was just something. He, The guy's legs are like... Pencils. Yeah, pencils. They're pencils. If anyone was like God gifted to run, it looked like that guy. And he, he looked like he would lose races because it looked like he wasn't trying at times. And he could just... So tactically... He ran like a gazelle. Yeah, he's a beautiful runner. Puzzling. His tactical sense was not what I would have... You know, you watch some of those old races and you're like, what are you doing? Like, you should just be blowing everyone away. I don't know why you're dawdling and getting boxed in. And that said... One thing that puzzles me about track is if you get convicted of a doping offense, you should retroactively be stripped of every medal you won on the international arena. There should I do not understand why this is this should be this this is the simplest and most basic deterrent against doping. You lose everything. So Nick Willis is the gold medal should be the gold medal winner of that 1500 meters. It's an outrage that that gold medal doesn't belong to Willis. And it, it it dumbfounds me that the sport hasn't figured out that the best way to prevent doping is to make uh, doping sanctions retroactive. You lose everything, right? We assume you, you, we have to assume you were doping your whole career. You cannot play some game and say, well, I started doping two months ago and so everything else is clean. No, you broke the rules and that means you are being banished from the sport. And if at some time, if at some point, you prove that you were banned incorrectly, we'll reinstate you. But right now, Nick Willis is the gold medal winner. And we can go down the list and name all kinds of other people who ought to have medals who were denied them. And given how much of a, of a um, disproportionate return there is to being a gold medalist, you know, th- there are serious stakes here. Nick Willis's life looks nothing like his life now if he's the gold medalist in that meters, right? I mean, he's for one thing, he'd be he'd be worth ten times as much money. He'd be a household name. He'd be up in the pantheon with John Walker and New Zealand distance runners, and you know, on and on down the list. And he's not. Why? Because this sport doesn't know how to police itself. It drives me just drives me crazy. Really does. Yeah, it is sort of crazy. It just I think it would be a great deterrent. But even with the sport and doping, and you know, right off the bat, you started with. Uh, the possible lack of doping during doping regulations during COVID. And I remember I used to hear from people, I'm like, oh, come on, it can't be that bad. I'm like, like the IWF would have to be on on this stuff. There's no way they're covering up all these tests. And then, whoops, it came out. Lamine Diak was taking bribes to cover up stuff. So <laughs> some of the stuff in running, you can't make up. I know. You can't make the stuff up. 
Okay, Malcolm, very quickly, I know you're a Let's Run message board visitor. Sorry, Let's Run.com visitor. Yeah. But people want to know, do you go to the message boards? Do you post? Do you read? What's up? I um, I definitely read. I have posted maybe once in my life. I think the returns to posting are not great, but I feel like many others post for me. Um, you know, there are... Uh, I, I, it's a constant source of amusement, the message boards. Um, occasionally, I do wish that on serious, there's, there are cases where you can get some, actually get some good running advice, but those, but my frustration is that those boards are uncurated. And I feel like there should be a special curated stream for serious topics. Like some kid writes in, or some person writes in and says, I want to break 18 minutes in the 5K. Here's what I'm running. What am I doing wrong? That's legit, right? And I would love for that to be, so let's get rid of all the junk and all the the, the doofuses, and let's have serious people weigh in on, okay, if this guy's running this and doing this, what is he doing wrong? Like, that's my one, and I, I consume the serious stuff the most, and I almost want it to be more serious and nerdy. That makes sense. And I think with the training threads, it would be once someone starts it, it goes serious. Like anonymity, I think for certain things like talking high end doping, somebody's, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm having trouble with my wife or something like that. I think there's a lot of reasons or some like awkward high school kids. Like, hey, I want to ask this girl out. Like, I think there's some point for discussion on Let's Run. You just sort of evaluate the ideas. But mm-hmm. we try to moderate it. But you're right. Like one guy can ruin that thread on the 18 minute high school kid. So we probably should have a way to just turn it on. This one, you at least have to be registered to post. Everyone here is registered. It's just a higher bar of entry. Yeah, yeah. And I would love to see integration of... Um, so to my earlier point about workouts, that workouts are the great underutilized fact about running, about running culture. And what I would love to see is the integration of someone's Garmin or Strava workout posting and these kind of comments. So have people post a week of workouts and then have the group evaluate and critique and suggest and based on what they're seeing. That's super interesting. So kind of like case studies, because you don't, this is the thing about um, the question of how to train, if you're in the serious mediocre category, is, um, is really complicated. And you can get a lot of, uh, you can get feedback that's individual to you. You get that from your coach or from reading stuff or just from observing yourself. And you can get kind of macro advice. People ought to run at least, you know, X number of miles. What you're not getting is a range of case studies. And that's the third. All great training is all three of those things. It is a range of case studies. It's macro observations and it's individualized feedback. And it's that middle one where things like Let's Run could do an enormous service is, you know, I'm a late 50s runner. Give me, give me a bunch of case studies of people in my general age range and let's, let's see their workouts and let's comment on them and let's get a sense of what people in my position are doing. Like there's a unique opportunity to kind of leverage the running community for that kind of, um, for that kind of content. I think there's some thread. I mean, this is just, it's not exactly what you want, but it's, like over 50s masters racing and training thread or something. And it seems to take yeah. off. And I'm like, what are people? But I'm not quite 50. I'm getting very close. But 
it's very popular, but I see how, yeah, you could, you could expand that out. Yeah. And like, see, like, who's that great? Um, there's a whole group of over 50 guys in L.A., David Olds, the Fluffy Bunnies, that's what they're called. Um, you know, I can imagine like a little Fluffy Bunnies thread where they're all posting their workouts and the rest of the Let's Run community is weighing in on like, you know, what, um, anyway, that would be my, uh, how much, both you guys are still very active runners. Yeah, I don't race that much, but I do run almost every day still. You could run laps around me, Malcolm. I hope you couldn't lap me in a mile, but I better be able to break six minutes. You, you gotta be kidding me. Come on. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. <laughs> I swear I wasn't that talented. Somehow I ran 28.06 for 10K, but you could have beat me very easily in high school, I'll say that much. That is not true. But I got a new daughter. The problem is I moved out to the suburbs uh, from from New York. Uh, and I, well, New York's really not the best running city, but I now have a beautiful three-mile loop. Yeah. And there's no more reason to go more than that three miles. So it's got to change. Wait, where where do you live? What what suburb? Uh, Norwalk, Rowayton, Connecticut. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the coaching thing, though, like... Rojo, the other co-founder of Let's Run, is not on here. It's probably killing him. I mean, he he claims he makes the podcast and everything, and one of our more prominent guests, and he's not on here for it. But he was a coach at Cornell. He would say, oh, you shouldn't follow someone else's training. He's like, I'll coach you. Oh, plug, let'srun.com slash coaching. But, you know, Malcolm, have you ever had a coach? Like, what about just getting a coach? No, I don't know. Well, I, not really. I've tried, I, I've thought, I've thought about it, but um, I... Yeah, I might do it. I somehow like the it's I like thinking about it and observing it and but when I want someone actually giving me advice when I don't problem is I wouldn't really have the time to do half of the things I should be doing. That's the problem. But I would like to know what they are. That's that's you know, and I'd want to know like um and I do have very specific I would like to see what I could break five minutes again this coming summer. And for that I I realize now after last summer I need a you need a coach to do at my age to do that, you need a coach. You can't do it on your own. And one I'm amazed you have time to watch retro YouTube videos. So I'm kinda maybe that's the problem. I'm too close to running, I'm around running all the time, so I don't relax by watching retro YouTube videos. I like, you know, read your books or listen to stuff like that. But Yeah. It's a just older with family responsibilities, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I kind of pick and choose with the running. Like this summer I did, our, we had a summer training program, and I did it. You have an app and stuff. But I would skip all of the certain stuff and do like the couple hard workouts a week or do parts of them, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find the right balance, I think. All right, Malcolm, one more question before we go. 2020 has been, I mean, a crazy year, very sad year in many ways and many unnecessary deaths. But... A guy who was very influential in my family was in one of your books. He was my dad's boss, and that's Roger Horchow. He was in Tipping Point, and he died, I guess, back in April or May. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this summer. Yeah. And it's sort of fascinating. One, everyone needs to meet a guy like Roger Horchow. I mean, Rafer Johnson I'm reading about. There's just some of these guys who were super accomplished. Roger he made his money with the Horchow collection. It was a like high-end mail-order catalog. And then he sells that and retires and makes, I don't know how many Tony Ward Broadway musicals. And if you met him, he was just sort of, oh yeah, you know, I'm kind of doing some plays. And But he researched it and he made it sound like it was random luck that these things happened. Mm-hmm. But he also was just such a genuine person. Like I think like Rafer Johnson was this way too. Like, 
And so you, the point and tipping point was, I guess he was what you call a connector, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and I guess you knew his daughter. I think you knew Sally. Is that right? I knew Sally. Yeah, no Sally. Yeah, talk a little bit about Roger. Roger Horshaw deserves, the running audience needs to know about Roger Horshaw in 2020. I just feel like he was a tremendous human being and everybody could benefit from him. Roger, <coughs> one of those kind of rare one in a million people who I met 20 some odd years ago um, and uh, through his daughter, he was this kind of, you're absolutely right, completely unassuming. You would never know that he was a business genius. Um the driest, most laconic sense of humor, um, this kind of way of talking, which you couldn't even make up, that this kind of, um, uh, dr- this draw, it was a weird kind of drawl. And he was, he was part of this revolution in American retail, I mean, front and center. Um, uh, and then you're right, went on and was one of the most successful people on Broadway for 25 years. Um, uh, God only know. I mean, he bat- everything that was good and successful. If you asked Roger, he'd be like, "Yeah, I might, I might have been involved in that." I mean, he was that kind of. Um, but he was this a genuine. I loved him and got to when I first got to know him because he was this genuine example of what of what I call a connector, which is someone who had the ability to bridge um, all kinds of social barriers. Roger knew everyone from every where and. If he thought you were interesting, he would spend time to get to know you, regardless of whether you were rich or beautiful or well-connected or on those things. He just was one of those. Um, I came to believe when I was writing The Tipping Point that people like that are the, are the reason society works. They're the kind of glue of society. And he was that. I mean, I think that there are a million things that work because of Roger that we're not aware of today. Um, anyway, at, at a... At a grand old age, well into his 90s, he died uh, this summer. And the good news is I saw him not long before he died, before COVID. And he was, he was 100%. I mean, he, he was, he was, he got, I think he got ill very, very close to the end of his life and went very, very quickly. It was the best way. He lived just a fantastic life. And I think no one should have any regrets about um, the way he, the way he passed and, um, Anyway, yeah, I'm. I am. It sounds like you are in the same category as me. You are a rich, a richer person for having met him. And I, I mean, I, I don't think you can bottle what he was. But I mean, your whole thing in the book was like, if you go through the phone book, we give him a list of like two hundred names. Mm-hmm. He'll know a hundred of them, or someone with that last name, and most people will know twenty. Yeah. yeah. But so I think so. He must, this must have been. I was trying to figure this out. So I think he was ninety-one when he died. Yeah. So at the age of eighty. In like 2009, I get a Facebook message. He's like, Weldon of Weldon and Robert? And Roger Horchow is like reaching out to me on Facebook. And I'm like, what? And it, it, Carol and his wife was very sick at this point. Yeah. And I was hearing that from my dad. And I, and I called him Mr. Horchow. Mr. Horchow, it's so great to hear, you know, like, yeah. give my best to your wife. And he was just, one, genuinely interested. And he is acknowledging we don't know how much time she has. Like, he accepted she had a great life and just there was no bitterness or... yeah any of that. And then I moved back to Texas. And next thing you know, like I offer him nothing. He's like, come over, come to dinner. And we go to some, you know, he's a dinner party and all these like really prominent people are there and me. Yeah. I've been to cut some of those dinner parties. They're fantastic. Yeah. Just, it was just fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And then I liked him also. He did the, we were having dinner one time in some restaurant and 
this isn't like some this is Dallas, Texas. It's pretty easy to park, but there's a parking garage. And we're leaving. He's like, oh, my, my car is in, in the bottom. I, I didn't want to pay for the valet. <laughs> and I'm like, this is great. Trust me, Roger could pay for the valet. <laughs> yeah, he could pay for the valet. But like you said, he was in good health. I th- last year, I heard he was still driving at the age of 90. So Yeah, yeah. He, had, he If I go, if, if, if either of us have a life like Roger's, we're doing well. Well, I think that's a good way to end this podcast. We need to have you back if you're willing to come back because this was very fun, very informative. Really fun. Thank you so much, guys. Have a, have, a, have a lovely rest of your day. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Malcolm. Thanks for listening. And it's not too late. You can still become a Let's Run.com insider for the special price of 75 bucks, And that includes a free Let's Run.com shirt of your choice that retails for $30. So you can get the iconic yellow Let's Run.com shirt if you want, or the 159.40 shirt. You get insider access, exclusive content, a private members-only forum. Engage with the most advanced minds in the running world. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. And you also, right now, can save 20% on nearly all running shoes from our partner, let'srun.com slash subscribe.